Hello, and welcome to Living It Radio. I'm Kelly DiNardo, here with Amy Pierce Hayden. We are the authors of Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat. Through our book and this podcast, we aim to make the principles of yoga alive, active, accessible, and personal. On this podcast, we go deeper into the topics we address in the book by talking to compelling people who can help us live an inspired, connected, joyful life. Today, we are joined by world-renowned yoga and meditation teacher Rod Stryker. Rod is the founder of Para Yoga, author of The Four Desires, Creating a Life of Purpose, Happiness, Prosperity, and Freedom, and the creator of a new app, Sanctuary, which offers guided yoga nidra, among other things. In this interview, we talk to Rod about what yoga is, how the practice helps us uncover our true nature, and what it is to live a life of purpose. I actually wanted to start with your yoga journey. I know that it started by reading and following Light on Yoga, so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that and how your practice evolved. Yeah, I, I'd like to keep it short because I think the subject matter is so interesting and so much more uh, relevant to people's lives than my background. Uh, I, I, you know, very briefly, I discovered yoga uh, out of a book. It was recommended I do it out of a book. I was uh, 19 at the time. And this was in about 1978, 79. And I wound up having some amazing experience out of this book, as you mentioned, Light on Yoga. So much so that uh, I guess it really changed the course of my life. Uh, I was practicing yoga on my own in my apartment, little very modest apartment in Denver. And it led, I just had some really extraordinary experiences. And gradually, um, kind of, Let's speed up the tape. Moving forward, I then moved back to Los Angeles, which was where I grew up. I attended a Kundalini yoga class for the first time. So this was the first time in almost a year I'd, of doing yoga that I actually was in a class with someone teaching me yoga. And, you know, the passion, I guess that flame was lit and it never went out. Um, two years later, I, so I did Kundalini yoga for the next two years. Mm, I like to call it consistently and consistently. And... Uh, I do it for a month every day and then I'm not maybe the next month, two or three or four times. And then in 1980, I met, uh, Yogi Raj Allen Finger and his father who became my, my seminal teacher for the first 18, 19 years. Uh, he was 75 when I met him. He started yoga when he was 50. He was a student of Yogananda, uh, Shivananda and a tantric mystic. And he just embodied, he made it, he made this vision of yoga so distinct and, uh, which was that ultimately it was about celebrating life and that there was almost an inseparable, um, connection ideally between life and practice. And that was really, I think, what's defined my journey. I mean, that school of yoga is Tantra yoga and uh, you know, within two years, another year and a half, I was teaching, and um, you know, and now I've been teaching for just short of forty years. And uh, he passed away at the age of ninety-seven. 
I then found another teacher whom uh, kind of took me where Manny left off and, and, and was able to take me even further. So I, I've been very blessed by the people I've studied with and to have studied with them. And they, they define me as a practitioner and they define my vision as a man and, and ultimately what I do in terms of my writing and living and everything else. I think it's interesting that you started with Light on Yoga, which is primarily an asana book, but you have said in in other interviews and um, talks online that that book really defined for you what yoga can be and what it is. And so I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit more on that. You know, I'll, I'll be very honest with you. I actually don't remember it. I don't remember the content so well. Uh, it's been a long time. It's been 40 years. And I, and I think I glanced at it once in the intervening 40 years. But I think what was most compelling to me was the introduction, and either implicit or explicit, I don't remember now, but this idea that our innate, innately we are already at peace and whole. We are already whole. And from where I was coming as a, as a young man at that point in my life, that was really a profound, almost a head-turning moment where I began to hear this idea of, and he presented, I believe it was in, in the context of either the Vedic term Atman or possibly the yoga term Purusha, where that a part of us is already whole and complete. And really that yoga was a process whereby, no doubt, we were going to use uh, willpower and methodology in order to get closer to that part of us that was already whole. And, and, uh, and anything I, anything more I want to kind of convey about what that introduction meant to me, that would be just projection at this point, because I actually don't remember. I don't remember. Some of our listeners might not be familiar with Tantra yoga. Would you explain some of the tenets? A lot of contemplative traditions outside of the, outside of Tantra make the case that desire is bad or negative. And Tantra doesn't, doesn't, isn't, is not at all compatible, not at all, doesn't resonate with that idea at all. In fact, they basically say that uh, desire isn't inherently good or bad, but some are more helpful than others. And there really isn't a judgment, as it were. And is it, it's strange to say this, uh, and scholars might kind of resist what I'm about to say, but if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, which is, I think, the seminal text on Dharma, on living one's life fully and with purpose, what you wind up seeing is similar. And that is that Krishna says something, which again is, is maybe a kind of alternative universe that a lot of contemplative traditions wouldn't take into account. But Krishna says, so the Lord says to the seeker, says, I am desire itself when desire is in line with dharma in other words that god is desire and this is this is kind of the tantric idea and that is the, the term is kama devi that it's through desire the universe was created it's through god or goddess's desire that the universe was created and so number one is this idea of trying to um, not uh, attempting to create an approach to living whereby you don't inherently see wanting to be successful, say, financially, wanting to put your kids through college, wanting to, wanting to fill in the blank. 
is inherently negative. And so that's number one. Let's say that, number one. The second thing would be this idea of power, which is also kind of a, a, a unique take on a term that it's easy to have a lot of judgment about. But the, the, the supposition in Tantra is that you need power, whatever you hope to succeed in. And when I see people uh, kind of resist or chafe at that as I'm teaching it, I just say, well, let's just take a step back and for a moment, can you, do your obstacles or do your negative patterns have a certain power over you? And everyone pauses and begins to think. I'm just saying, is it ever the case that you wish to stop doing something that you know isn't helpful, and yet you find that, the, that this thing has more power over you than you have over it? And most people agree. And so the notion is that whether you're moving inward towards, say, spiritual liberation, or you're moving outward toward worldly abundance, whichever you might be pursuing, you need power. You need, you need to somehow gather your energetic and other mental resources, we'll say, in order to make that possible. A third supposition of Tantra, and stop me anytime you want. Third supposition is that the body is an altar. The body is not some profane sack of pus and poor <laughs> bones. bones and God knows what else, and, you know, tomorrow's excrement. But instead, that the universe or the body was created as a universe unto itself, and that if we master the forces within the body, it is truly like approaching the most sacred altar on the planet. In fact, they would say the body is a superlative altar because it's always there and you have, you have an enduring access to it. So they, in essence, say it's not worshiping the body. So this kind of body physiological worshiping that is not uncommon in the yoga world in one form or another. It's understanding the subtle body, the, the inner world of the body. And then finally, I mean, the last tenet of Tantra that, that again, was for me such a kind of eye-opener, but, but ultimately validated in the experiences I was having through practice, is that life is not suffering. You know, that life is inherently sacred. And that it's, 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 we may not always see it that way. Uh, we look out into the world and we see confusion and chaos and division and anger and abuse and war and all of those things. So logically, it doesn't make sense to us necessarily. But when we get still, we have the opportunity to recognize that life is sacred. And if we really go to every tradition, whether it's Jesus or it's Buddha or it's Muhammad, you actually see a kind of similar description of the universe, that there is this opportunity to be connected to it in such a way that we understand that we are part of divinity and that this whole thing is inherently divine, whether or not we see it. And ultimately what I spoke about earlier, the work of accessing the body as an altar, that there's no energy in the world that's not in your body. Um, <clears throat> that and cultivating power, those things are, that's really the fundamental strategy and the principles behind ultimately having the experience that life is sacred. And 
that to me was like some of the most reassuring stuff I'd ever heard. There are certainly no existentialists that ever talk like that. Now I'm talking my philosophy background. And, you know, and Aristotle kind of got close. But for me, the fact that I could, Im- I could start experiencing these things through a practice, and I didn't have to think my way there, made it all start to unfold, unfold and reveal itself bit by bit. Kelly and I spend time in our book talking about um, habit versus nature. Mm. Um, and would you say then the earlier step in the tantric approach then is to first uncover your nature or is it to the cultivation of willpower to begin directing yourself on a path or is it more about restriction and restraint to start moving toward um, this idea of becoming quiet enough and being able to overcome and master oneself? Is there a specific way? Gosh, it's such a wonderful question. I don't know if I've ever been asked that question before. It's, I I would say it's a great question and the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Options are good. I don't want to just be glib (laughs) about it. I mean, you know, you look at that, that, those three things, those three options about how we move in, how we start to approach this world, it's an it's a, it's a extraordinary triangulation. Will has to be the first step, in a sense, because if we don't exercise the willpower, then all of the, none of the promise of what happens when we go inward or what happens when we stop doing negative things, we, we, we can't experience any of that. In other words, we have to get ourselves to yoga class, or we have to get ourselves to our cushion, or we have to do, or we have to exercise will and what time we go to bed the night before in order to wake up and do practice. So it, it may not be the most pleasant of the three choices, uh, most popular of the three choices, but I would offer that will is the most important one. And, you know, just speaking on a personal note, all of the promise that I found in those early days in yoga when I didn't have a teacher was there, but it it was incumbent upon me to have the will to experiment doing yoga on my own for me to get anything out of it. So as I said, it may not be the most popular of the three options, but I would say it's the, it's the critical first step and it, and, and, and it, it never leaves, never leaves us. You mentioned a a few minutes back, the text, the Bhagavad Gita Mm -hmm. and the short commentary on the conversation between Krishna and Arjuna. You know, I would agree that Dharma is the main, if not the point of it, but my, one of my impressions is that uncovering your nature in doing that is the key to finding your purpose, to living your Dharma. Mm -hmm. You would agree with that. So is that, is that the first step for us? Is the first step to really understand the difference between our, our habit nature and our nature nature? And is that nature nature our nature at conception? Do you, do you consider the same kind of nature as the nature of Ayurveda, looking at one's constitution and uncovering mm-hmm. that to get a better sense of direction? Mm-hmm. Or how do you approach first one, uh, how, do, how, do you know, how did you know the difference between your nature, Rod, and your conditioning from your family upbringing and how, how that plays a part? And how do we, in that easiest way, start to uncover our nature? Wow, that you've packed a lot into that one. That's, <laughs> uh, 
But you hit, you know, your first question was really, uh, I think, was a distillation of the answer, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. that uh, our conditioned mind is not, is not the reference point for understanding our life's purpose. And let me just make something mm -hmm. very clear. Life's purpose is not the same as profession. You know, th those are two very distinct things and people very often kind of um, uh, merge or blend the two. So to look... Or believe they need to be doing yeah, their profession. Their right. That, okay, well, what's my purpose? And it's like they're trying to figure out what to do for a living. Uh, so they almost have nothing to do with each other. Uh, so, but the, the critical point and going back to the context of the Gita is that there are so many shoulds and shouldn'ts. Some of them are good and some of them are destructive. Indeed, some of them are family of origin influence. Some of them are society. All of those are very conditional. All of those are very, um, uh, you know, random in a sense. And what that text is speaking to and what in my own life has been, you know, has been validated through my own life and through sharing about Dharma with thousands of students and, and doing what I can through the work of The Four Desires, that book and the process I wrote, uh, it's all about learning to get quiet and learning to hear uh, and get to that uh, kernel or core seed of truth of who we are. So the, and the teachings of that are directly consistent with the Gita, which is the idea is that we're each unique. The blueprint of our purpose is embedded in our constitution, as you described, consistent with the ideas of Ayurveda. And our job is to not find a good purpose, like try and figure out what Steve Jobs' purpose was or Albert Einstein's or Da Vinci's, but rather, what is that seed of truth? I love the Gita's teaching on where Krishna says, it is better to do your duty badly than someone else's duty well. Uh, and that, that really speaks to the idea that ultimately happiness and fulfillment is measured by the extent to which we are expressing and living and fulfilling that blueprint that was placed in the seed that became the human being that we see in the mirror. In essence, that, learning to get consistent with that. So it is a matter of getting quiet. And you're right to say that while Dharma may be the main feature the, you know, that pervades that whole scripture, the whole point of the teaching of yoga, which is what Krishna is doing, teaching these four disciplines, these four distinct paths of yoga and beyond, is, the way I put it, is to have the clarity, the awareness by which you can know what to do when you're not doing yoga. The whole point is to, and, and man, that one statement stands out in that book, the Bhagavad Gita, to me more than any other, which says, the sole purpose of life. So it's like drum roll. What is the sole, <laughs> what is the sole purpose? I mean, tell me, what's the sole purpose of life? And then there's this kind of somewhat opaque, uh, maybe obtuse to some people, answer, spiritual discrimination. And it's like, well, what the heck does that mean? And it's exactly this idea is, what am I going to say yes to? What am I going to say no to? That defines who I am, and it ultimately leads to me 
it ultimately determines how much I honor this unique being that I am that at least from the point of view of the tradition, you were formed in the mind of the divine. Mahad is this most, it's the most extraordinary term. It, it means the great or noble idea. And it means that each of us was and is created from a noble idea, a noble idea of the divine. So therefore, it's, it's the extent to which we can get a sense of that seed, impulse, and drive. That was the Mahad, my reason for being. Uh, that shapes the extent to which we live with fulfillment and happiness. Now we're going to take a quick break from our conversation with Rod to tell you about this week's giveaway, which comes from our wonderful publisher, Shambhala. This week, two listeners will get a gift pack of books that includes Everyday Ayurveda Cooking, When Things Fall Apart, The Monkey is the Messenger, Love Hurts, and of course, Living the Sutras. To enter, rate and review this podcast, take a screenshot and share it on your Instagram stories, tag us at Kelly Donardo, at Amy Pierce Hayden, and at Shambhala Publications. That's S-H-A-M-B-H-A-L-A underscore publications. And now, back to our chat with Rod Stryker. Rod, tell us about the four desires and what they are. Right. The four desires are term, the term for this concept is purusharta. Puru meaning soul or consciousness, a higher self. And arta in this context is the means, so or for the purpose of. And so it's the mm-hmm. idea that we all have, all souls have, four inherent desires or aims, if you will. And these aims are how it's through their drive, through their through their power, existence. Yeah, their very mm-hmm. existence, their pulsation, that we serve and fulfill the purpose of our soul. So the first one we've actually spent some time talking about already, which is Dharma, or <clears throat> it's, it's translated a lot of ways, but we could call it purpose. Um, it also means way, order. Uh, law. But the idea here is that I am meant to be or contribute to life and to the world and to existence unique unto me. And what is that? So the dharma of a tulip is to become a tulip bulb and dharma of a pumpkin seed is to become a pumpkin. With human beings, it's a little more complex because we have so many choices and it's easy to lose dharma. You know, the questions you were asking earlier conditioned mind versus nature. You know, which one, where is my purpose? Well, it's embedded in you. And so that first impulse is fulfill your dharma, you know, fill the dharma, that aim. The second of them is to, is called arta. And arta in this context means, means it actually the way, the, the things that you need in order to fulfill your purpose. And that's unique to all of us, although there are some general categories we could say you need a certain level of income. You need some money. You need a home or some kind of level of security. You need health, for example. And then, and then one more to add on to that is you need whatever it is that's unique to you fulfilling your dharma. So right now, maybe if, 
we all three believe that we're fulfilling our dharma by doing this call, then part of this is the technology we're utilizing. That actually comes in the category of arta as well. Uh, the third one is kind of, in some ways, the tricky one because it's the term is kama, K-A-M-A, and this is kama in orthodox Hindu cultures means lust, but a larger framework for understanding of it, you would call it pleasure, the idea of pleasure. And so this is the impulse toward beauty and art and friendship and sensuality and sexuality. And it's interesting that in the more ancient rendering of Vedic wisdom, that this was considered on par with health and that it's our impulse toward pleasure that ultimately is this is key is a spark that allow that motivates us and inspires us, uh, and and uh, you know and one last thing about pleasure in addition to the more central versions of it that we can that are easy to point to, the other aspect of pleasure relates to the idea of the pleasure of accomplishment. Uh, so especially if it's dharmic, if it's within your purpose to, and and there's a great, I think it's 10th century or 11th century treatise called Manu. And in this text, this great wise, I mean, he was like the Solomon of uh, the Vedic tradition. And he says something like, uh, a person will brave the roughest seas for the pleasure of accomplishment. You know, or they'll brave the strain of writing a book in order for to have the pleasure of having written a book is kind of the way I think about it. Uh, and then the last one is uh, the last one is the one that probably gets most the press in the yoga world, which is moksha. And that's often translated as liberation. And then in an extreme kind of rendering of that term is this idea of like becoming so self-aware, so self-realized that you drop your body and you transcend to heaven. Um, but that's not the ancient rendering at all. That, that point of view is actually more recent, maybe a thousand years old. Whereas the Vedic wisdom said, people didn't want to die. People, people didn't want to die and leave their body. They wanted the, the, they wanted the experience of the, fulfilling the three other aims, but they wanted to be unburdened while they were doing it. Without attachment. Without attachment, without the alarm going off in the morning and you think, oh my God, what a burden. I have to wake up and I've got to get out of bed and I've got to do this and this and this. Or you want to experience the pleasure of love, but you don't want to carry the attachments that may come with love. And so moksha doesn't mean liberation as much as it means freedom or being unburdened. And uh, so those are the four desires. And if we, I mean, if we just take a step back and take it out of this exotic context of it being India and being thousands of years old, if you really think about having purpose, if you could fulfill a sense of why you're here, if you could have sufficient means to do that, if you could have pleasure along the way, and yet in that journey be unburdened, aren't we really talking about a full and complete life? You know, mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's very easy to understand why having means or having pleasure or being unburdened would contribute to a happier life. I think understanding why knowing and living your purpose or your dharma would contribute to a happier life is just less clear or less obvious. And so I was hoping you could speak to that. Why, why is knowing and living our purpose so important? 
the way I ask people to consider this is the following way is the results of our efforts we have very you know, we have marginal control over some more than others. And, you know, this is the whole thing about focusing on the action, not on the fruits of the action. And so much of that, I think, plays into this idea of why is, why is honoring our purpose so important? Is because through the course of my life, I can be, I can commit and follow through and act upon things that I want to achieve. I may or may not get them. And once I get them, I may or, not be, may or may not be able to keep them. I may lose them. But what can never be lost is the sense of living for purpose. Uh, that's, that's infallible in the sense that if I know that I committed to the right thing or the thing that my conscience, not my mind, not my conditioning, but my, that deep in my heart I heard this was the right path, I never, that can never be taken away. So this is the one Living for purpose defines the path in which the, the very gift of committing to it can never be left, can never be taken away. It's never, it's never something that it can't be it lost. Can't be lost. Mm. And to have that level of security is something that the more we reflect on what human life is like, fear and uncertainty accompanies us every step. We don't know that we're going to be able to outpace the, the challenge in, challenges in our life. We don't know that we're going to be able to keep the people or the things that we love in our life. We don't know so much. But what we have the possibility of having is this one piece of certainty that we lived for the purpose. So how does our yoga practice help us uncover our dharma? Because I think... Certainly now, most of us focus on, when we think of yoga, we think of asana, maybe asana and pranayama, maybe asana, pranayama, and meditation. Right. But, um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on how yoga can really help us uncover and, and live our purpose. Well, that might need a, re- a definition of, of yoga. yoga. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, let's just take a step back and just say, you can do asana and never experience yoga. You can experience yoga and never do asana. Yoga is a mind thing, or it's not yoga. You know, it has to be about the mind. It has to shift the mind and endow the mind with the capacity to overcome the mind. Otherwise, it's not yoga by definition. Yoga is a stilling of the movement of mind. If we now say yoga is a kind of is a, is something that stills the mind, stills our intellect, then we can begin to hear what lies deeper within, and we can begin to work with almost a different part of mind or a different part of consciousness that has the answer to every question. The understanding is that there is a part of us that does have access to all knowledge. That's at the kind of core of the yoga philosophy. And it's not your intellect. No matter how bright we are, no matter how schooled we are, no matter who our parents were or anything else, it's not our intellect. It's this higher mind that has access to all knowledge. So it's about getting the mind quiet and then, and then really, 
purposefully asking questions. Why am I here? What have been the most precious moments of my life? When have I felt like I really belonged, like I was living my purpose? What were those moments? To help people, what I do to kind of answer those questions within the process that I developed, it definitely brings in simple meditations that help the mind get quiet. One of my favorite practices that I suggest people consider doing and, and to help them get closer to their sense of purpose is after meditation, they reflect on a time in their life where they sensed or felt that they were fully empowered. They were the most alive. They were um, not necessarily full of joy, but that they really had a sense that this was a peak moment in their life. But I asked them to look at it within the context of a time that was challenging. Because part of understanding your purpose is uncovering the lessons your soul is meant to learn here. And thus, if you go to a time of challenge in your life that you rose above and that you showed up in the biggest way possible, this is kind of a, you know, a climbing, this is the rocky moment. This is the moment of redemption where you're running up that, those stairs or whatever the, whatever the case may be where really you felt this is the best of me showing up despite my, or in spite of my circumstances. And you do that from a quiet mind and you write the poem. You just simply write, what were you feeling? What was moving in you? Uh, what were the peak kind of words you heard yourself saying to yourself that described that state, that described the moments? And very often, and, and I, I ask people to do this who are not poets, but I ask them to do it in the form of poetry so they don't, they're less in their head when they're doing it. And then you look back and I ask people to examine, and this is invariably, it invariably works, Find the phrases that speak to you now. And if someone can find three or four phrases within that poem, and again, remember all of this is post-meditation. So you're, you're a little more heightened in terms of your perception. You're a, little less out of, you're a little more out of the box, a little less in your conditioned mind. And when people read back the three or four phrases in their poem, I ask a simple question. Now, if you were to make those phrases part of your operating manual, in other words, that you made those your deepest driving desires, would that make a difference in your life? And invariably, every single time, people's eyes open. So one is get the mind quiet. Two, be willing to ask yourself questions. Three, look for the clues because life tells you who you are. And this is what you talk about as, your, as the Dharma code. Yes. Yes. For oneself. Yeah, mm -hmm. Exactly. There are additional pieces that we use, but invariably the poem is just kind of, is, is our shortcut to two thirds of the way to your life purpose is in your poem. Mm -hmm. Do you see universal obstacles um, that are not just human obstacles as far as things like sloth, laziness, mm -hmm. you know, misperception, you know, things like the clashes. Do you see consistent, the same kind of consistent obstacles for most people that you've worked with and the same obstacles within yourself that are kind of our pitfalls we have to know are going to be there? I mean, we can't, you know, Patanjali covers everything. 
you know, he covers mm -hmm. all the bases. Um, his, his system can't be improved. But we know that in his effort to be so pithy, the sutras are short. The sutras, as you both well know, they need commentary. They need, they need expansion. Uh, so on the one hand, I would say between the nine obstacles to yoga and the kleshas, which you described, uh, <clears throat> he's covered it all. But to have more specificity is invariably, is, is really helpful, is significant. And uh, so I thought, you know, I thought that when you started to ask the question, I didn't know it was going to necessarily tie into the teachings of the Yoga Sutra, but indeed um, it does. At the same time, it's really helpful to know kind of the, the destructive Dharma code that we've been following. So now instead of being driven by your Mahad, this great idea that brought you into being, you're driven by your family's ideas, the family dynamic, cultures. So this is really a non-constructive Dharma code, which in, in the process of the Four Desires I call a vikalpa. And V means to separate. Kalpa means the rule that's followed above all others. So this is, in other words, the rule that you follow that actually separates you from yourself, disconnects you. Um, and so I would say even within that, there are some themes that are consistent. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, they have to do with your people's relationship to risk, people's relationship to fear, or whether it's fear of success or fear of failure. There's others. And usually they, I mean, if you were, if you were a psychologist and you lean that way, you could look at early life experiences and see that we are continuing to follow those destructive rules because of some powerful impressions early in our life. Um, but, you know, from the yoga tradition, we'd actually say, wait a minute, it's backwards because in essence, before we had those experiences, we already had the karmic patterns at the time of creation, at the time of conception. And they materialized as experiences based on the parents you picked, based on the time you picked. And so they kind of took shape, but they were but they were in fact meant to the influence or meant to be put into put into motion by what was happening before you were born. Uh, um, but either way, the point is that it's good to name those things that stand in the way of you living your purpose. And are a lot of them consistent? I would say if after teaching the Four Desires for 20 years, I heard a new one, I'd be very surprised. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. 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 I like the idea of a non-constructive Dharma code. And part of what I think yoga does is help us kind of peel that away so we can live our constructive Dharma code, our true Dharma. Yes. And so it's possible to change our non-constructive Dharma code. Do you think it's possible to change our true Dharma? No, no. I mean, where there is flexibility is saying that your Dharma code, that again, just for the sake of those who the material is new to, what you're going to, what we're saying is that this Dharma code is the, is capturing in language your soul's innate drive to be and to become, 
what it's meant to be and what it's meant to become. So an uncover. So the Dharma code is an uncover. Beautiful. Correct. hundred okay. percent. It's mm -hmm. innate. Mm -hmm. uh, it does not change. What does happen is as we get, as we get increased clarity, it evolves, but the thing itself isn't changing. Our perception of it is changing. And so we get clearer and clearer. And then after you've done it three or four times over the course of five years or seven years, or, and then you begin to, you know, you, you get pretty, you, you make some progress about your Dharma code. And then you realize, well, there's a pattern I didn't recognize that I need. That's also part of my life lesson that I need to overcome that needs to be in there. I need to understand, oh, wait a minute. I need to have greater faith in myself. I, you know, faith is something that's so easy to lose. Or I need to be willing to stand alone. I always lean into others for approval. So what's happening is you're getting clearer. The Dharma code hasn't changed. The actual, that's embedded in your soul stuff. So, but what is happening is my perception is evolving and refining. And in the process, the Dharma code evolves. But let's just be clear. We're always seeing the same thing. We're just, hopefully, as we go along, we're seeing it more clearly. That lens is expanding, and then the uh, oh, the negative Dharma code, that wasn't the word you used. The, um, Destructive. Non-constructive Dharma code is being, in a way, restricted, or um, its life is being squeezed out because it's contracting, and this revelation is expanding the true Dharma right. code. Right, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I mean, just so everyone has a kind of, maybe a sense of the work, which is... It's big work. This is this is your life work. You know, this is really your life on Dharma is a life of work and cultivating clarity. Most of the time, if not all of the time, but most certainly most of the time, when people first attempt to do the work I'm describing, their Dharma code will not write their Dharma code. Their Vikalpa will write their Dharma code. So one of the things I require in people and it does, it sounds almost non-yogic, but so be it. I found that it's, that it really makes a big difference is these three words that people love to come up with in Dharma codes are love and serve and give. So what I say is your Dharma code can only have one of them. Some years ago, I was teaching the four desires and I was working one-on-one -on -one with someone. She read me this Dharma code that was full of loves and serves and gives. And I said, you know, this seems a little overwrought. How's how, if you were to do that, how would, how would that work, do you think? And she's, uh, well, I'm not really sure. I might not be good. And I said, well, give me some background. What, what do you do for a living? And she said, well, I'm a neonatal care, intensive care nurse. And um, I said, well, that's intense. You're obviously loving and serving and giving. And she said, and then she said, yes, and I have six children. And I said, okay. And okay, so you're a neonatal care nurse, and you, you have six kids. And I said, how's life? And she said, I'm on the verge of a nervous breakdown. I'm completely exhausted. I have nothing left to give. And I said, so let's just look at your Dharma code, because all you have in there is I love and I give, and I, I elevate my being by giving and, and doing this and doing that and doing that. So we get ideas in our head. And where are those ideas? Usually, what are they informed by? Our vikalpas are non-constructive, these kind of ide ideas that we've picked up along the way that actually could be wind up hurting and harming us. 
if you are serving your highest best interest, you're serving ever you're serving Dharma. They're inseparable. It's when we get it, and it's not your idea of what's serving humanity that's gonna necessarily equate to you serving your highest best interest. It's the other way around. This woman had an idea that if she loved and served and give, it would be her life purpose. Her life purpose is not intended to lead her to uh, nervous breakdown and exhaustion. So it shows that when, if she were to identify, and by the way, self-care became part of her Dharma code because that's part of her life lesson as opposed to following the path that she thinks society wants her, uh, wants to avail her, uh, wants her to avail herself in or of. And, you know, I remember now as I'm starting to recount her story, I remember that a lot of this love, serve, give thing had to do with an alcoholic father. And so this is not, that's not a Dharma code, even though it had the words love and serve and give in it. And she may have been the last person I ever, it may have been after her that I finally came down with the hammer and I said, Every Dharma code, every Dharma code, any Dharma code can only have one of those words in it. And it can't be, I will fix the no, world. No, please. <laughs> fix yourself, you'll fix the world. Exactly. Yeah. So, Radha, I'm, I'm always conscious of the time. Yeah. And thank you very much for yours. I just have one last question sure. for you. The subtitle of Living the Sutras is A Guide to Yoga Beyond the Mat. And what we really hope to do is to make... The wisdom in that text, very accessible and tangible. What practice really helps you stay in touch with and live your Dharma? For me, there's no, no real question about it. That, that I make time for silence every day is the most crucial thing, as well as my most treasured resource for living a life of meaning and purpose, really, for living my dharma. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a father to four children. Um, I'm a husband, and I run a business, and I'm a writer, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, the only thing, the glue that holds all of that together is accessing the resources that are beyond my intellect. And from there finding a level of coherence, psychological, emotional, spiritual, mental, physical. And so, in short, it's practice. I mean, and, you know, and then, I, I, and then part two of it would be, of course, I guess, would be um, the being able to um, always put my actions through the filter of love uh, first, above all else. And lastly, to never take myself too seriously and to understand that I'm in process uh, no matter how long I've meditated, no matter how long I can sit in meditation, um, that I'm in process and, and staying humble, you know, and just uh, knowing that I have more growing to do, you know, to the very end, being teachable to the end. Thank, Thank you, Rod. So yeah, much, this was Rod. really lovely, and um, we really appreciate your time and taking taking the time to chat with sure. us. Sure. Well, you, you guys are doing wonderful work, and uh, it speaks volumes. Uh, it's so invaluable that uh, that the work you've done, which focuses on translating ancient wisdom into practical applications, um, it's it's really what it's meant to do. I mean, it's easy to get. It's easy for these teachings to kind of be rarefied. 
and sends and and it's almost natural a natural inclination i think in all of us is that when something is ancient we make it sacred but we always feel somewhat separate from us mm-hmm. and uh the idea of humanizing uh the great texts is what all teachers really are meant to do and so i i want to praise you both for the work you've done and for inviting me to join you today oh thank you sure. thank you and thank you for all the work that you've done thank you sure of course Thank you for listening to Living It Radio. For those of you who want to find out more about Rod, where he's teaching, his book, The Four Desires, or his new app, Sanctuary, visit rodstriker.com. You can also find links to all of this, as well as more information about the resources we discussed in this episode in the show notes or at our website, livingitpodcast.com. And remember, Shambhala is giving away a gift pack of wonderful books to two listeners. To enter, rate and review this podcast, take a screenshot and share it on your Instagram stories, tag us at Kelly DiNardo, at Amy Pierce Hayden, and at Shambhala underscore publications. Thanks for listening.